Let's see, today is uh, New Year's Day, which means we're past Christmas, so it's time for a third Christmas message, <laughs> which is what, um, what I'm going to be doing today. We had a Christmas message two weeks ago, which I gave on uh, from Christmas from the Old Testament, and then last week we had Abner's Christmas message from the Old Testament, from Zechariah, and today we're actually going to dip into the more traditional Christmas story, uh, but in a somewhat untraditional way. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke 1.5, where we're going to start. We've all seen dramatizations of the nativity scene with either adults or adorable children dressed up in bathrobes or with Linus blankets wrapped around their heads and carrying staffs. I know our family has an adorable video of our youngest daughter when she played Mary uh, here at Grace Church in a, in a nativity story. Um, but I don't know if you've thought about this, but Christ is so much the center of Christmas. And what, what Abner and I both have talked about in the last two weeks is how Christ is the center of Christmas. That, that sounds shocking. It shouldn't. Christmas means celebration of Christ. Uh, and unfortunately, that often gets lost in the, in the shuffle. But Christ is so much the center of the Christmas story that I'm going to suggest to you this morning that if we were to play a, uh, a dramatic nativity scene, a nativity play, Christ could play every role except one. He could not play Mary, but he could play every other role in the story. And so that's what I'm going to try and illustrate today. Now, I'm, I want to be clear. My intent is not to spiritualize or allegorize the story. I'm not literally saying that Christ is all of the various parts in the story. I am suggesting that we can use the, the Christmas story as a mnemonic device to help us to remember to focus on Christ. That the story can point us toward Christ. Not literally that Jesus plays every role um, in, in the story, but that he could and that this should then focus our attention on Christ in another way. Um, we need as many ways as we can, it seems to me, especially in our culture, to focus on Christ at this time. So Jesus' qualifications to play nearly every part of the Christmas story can serve as a reminder that Christmas really is a God-man, a one-God-man show. Um, to put it in, a, in sort of showbiz terminology, uh, a one God-man show. It can help us to focus on him. So look with me at the beginning of the story in Luke 1.5, and we'll have our first character introduced, and we'll see uh, how that relates to Christ. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest. Stop there. I was like when... I've always wanted to do that. MacArthur always used to do that all the time. You know, get three words in, stop there. You know, and then you don't get back to it for the next three weeks. But um, <laughs> in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a certain priest named Zacharias. So the first character that we see, the first role that someone could play in the story is that of priest. Okay? So what are Jesus' qualifications to play the role of priest? You can check eventually. Um, but I'm going to go first to Hebrews 3 um, and verse 1, which says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, of our confession. Then you go to chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 14 to 16. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and, and to help in time of need. Uh, Jesus is, in fact, the high priest. Uh, he is a high priest who can sympathize with us, and we can go to him confidently. 
Um, Chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 20, tells us that where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is, in fact, the ultimate high priest, the priest forever. Um, Chapter 7, verses 24 to 28. Uh, Here the writer of Hebrews contrasts Jesus as priest with the earthly priest that the, the people were all familiar with. And he says, but he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this, in case we missed it. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And just two other verses here. Chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So it seems to me that Jesus is more than qualified to play the priest in our nativity play. So let's go to another character in the play. Go back to Luke 1, or stay there if you're already there. Going back to the story in Luke 1, we go down to the next character to be introduced in verse 11. In verse 11. Zechariah, as he goes into the temple, says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And then, of course, we know about the other angels that are part of the story, uh, speaking to Mary, speaking to Joseph, speaking to the shepherds. Uh, There are angels throughout this story. So I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus can also play the angel in our play. There are numerous encounters in the Old Testament with the angel of the Lord, which is, in fact, Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, And there are a number of ways of looking at this, um, one of which is uh, John says of Christ in John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, I did a message several years ago on this, uh, in which I went through virtually all of the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and showed that each one displays grace and truth, because that is the characteristic of Christ. But um, let me show you some other things just briefly uh, concerning angels Uh, in the Old Testament, or I should say the angel of the Lord specifically. Uh, In Judges chapter 6, there's an interesting thing that happens here. In Judges chapter 6 and verse uh, 19 and following, it says, Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, and he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak, to him being the angel of the Lord, 
as he is introduced in verses 11 and 12 of that passage, says that the angel of the Lord came to uh, Gideon. And so he does this and brings it out. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. What we have here is the angel of the Lord accepting worship. He's accepting worship from Gideon. Uh, Let's see, who is allowed to accept worship? That would be God. This is God in the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus. Uh, Go back to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll go from our uh, standard nativity story to one of our early flannel graph uh, Sunday school stories. Uh, That is Moses and the burning bush. Go to Exodus 3 and look at verse 2. Moses is pasturing the flock, verse 1 tells us, and verse 2 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Uh, And then verse 4 says, And when the Lord saw, that's Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Then verse 6, He, that is the angel, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 14, still the same. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. So uh, this is Yahweh, this is God appearing to Moses uh, from a burning bush, a physical representation of, of God, which is what Jesus does as the second person of the Trinity. Throughout the Old Testament, when God appears in some physical manifestation, it is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And he is identified in these instances as the angel of the Lord. Uh, I'm going to go back quickly to Judges again. Um, Uh, no, I'm going I'm to skip it. You can look at it. Um, back to the same passage. I was about to read to you multiple times in which it identifies this angel as God. Uh, and so just take my word for it. That's what happens. All right. So Jesus then is, I would suggest, uh, certainly qualified to play the angel in our play as well. Uh, He has a lot of experience being an angel. Uh, And so let's go back to the the, uh, New Testament story. This time, let's switch to the book of Matthew. Trying to do this kind of in a chronological order of when we meet people, when we meet characters. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. And verse 19. Well, let's start in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary, I've already said he's not going to play that role. All right, so that's not the next person that we're going to bump into. Uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So the next character is Joseph. Okay. I dare you to show me that he can play Joseph from the Bible. Well, I can. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, how is he identified? Being a righteous man. So I'm going to suggest to you that he can play Joseph as well because Jesus is the ultimate righteous man. If we look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, 
My children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm going to suggest to you, and I don't know if it's right or not, these guys can correct me afterwards, that he's identified as Jesus Christ, the righteous, because he's the only righteous man. Uh, It's not just an adjective. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, Romans 3. Romans 3. In verses 24 and 25, actually you'll do 25 and 26. Uh, 24 and 25. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is righteous and God demonstrates that uh, by raising him from the dead, the rest of us can be just and justified because of his righteousness. Chapter 5 of Romans, a critical passage. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that would be Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The one, what? Who is righteous just as, the, as one who was um, a transgressor, the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And because of that, the rest of this Uh, The next three verses tell us that is how we can become righteous and become saved. Um, I'm going to look at one more. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter identifies himself here as Simon Peter, a bondservant, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was, is the only righteous man, the only righteous human, and he allowed us to become righteous through his righteousness and his righteous acts And so, clearly, he can play the righteous man uh, in our play. Going back to the story in Luke 2, I'm going to take a little leeway here. I haven't already. I'm going to take a little leeway here. Uh, because I'm going to use the traditional view of this verse rather than what it really means. She gave birth to her firstborns, and and it's because it's a central character in all of the plays, so that's why it matters. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, some of us know it wasn't really an inn. Uh, There was a guest room and there was no room for him in the guest room. But let's assume that the the traditional notion of the inn is there, because you have to have the innkeeper in all of these nativity plays, right? And uh, sometimes he's a dirty guy. Um, What was his name? Thank you, my wife knows. Pigpen. Um, Sometimes he's a dirty guy and whatnot, but you have to have the innkeeper. So I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus can play the innkeeper. 
Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1, and this is something that um, at this very moment matters to Audrey Chow. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is the ultimate innkeeper. He is preparing a place for us to dwell for all eternity. Back to Luke 2. Back to Luke 2. In the next verse, verse 8, And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. As we all know, and as the story reminds us, or as songs remind us, there were shepherds. So can Jesus play the shepherd in our play, with or without Linus's blanket to wrap around his head? You're probably thinking of a particular passage, but I'm going to take you somewhere different. Uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Because Jesus actually is identified as a shepherd multiple times in Scripture, but different terms, different titles as a shepherd. But starting in chapter uh, 13, verse 20, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So he's identified here as the great shepherd. Well, what better person to have play the shepherd than the great shepherd? But that's not all. In 1 Peter 2, if we go over a couple of uh, books to 1 Peter 2, and verse 25... It says, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Jesus here is the shepherd of our souls. Wow, that's something to meditate on. Jesus is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. We go a little further in 1 Peter. In chapter 5, and verse 4, and Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he is not only the great shepherd and the shepherd of our souls, but he is the chief shepherd. Okay, I'll give in and go to the passage you thought of first. The book of John. John chapter 10, where Jesus himself says, I can play the role of shepherd in the play. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. And then verses 16 and 26 and 27 tell us more about the good shepherd and his sheep. So Jesus not only can play the shepherd, he is again the ultimate shepherd, just as he is the ultimate priest and the only righteous man. So let's go back to our story to find out who shows up next. Back to Luke 2. And the same verse, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock. Well, what kind of flock is this? Lambs. Particularly, 
as Dr. Varner taught us years ago, uh, this particular region was known for raising Passover lambs, specifically this area around Bethlehem. And so Jesus can also play the role of the lamb, particularly a Passover lamb. Now, to look at this, we need to go back to the Old Testament again, back to Genesis 22, at least I do, you don't need to. Genesis chapter 22, with the story of Abraham about to offer Isaac. And I referenced this a couple of weeks ago. And in verse 8, after Isaac asks him in verse 7, Uh, We have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Uh, And I suggested to you last time that that was indicating Christ. Uh, And I can be forgiven for saying that because Isaiah 53, Messianic passage, And verse 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And if we go forward to Acts, the book of Acts, in verse 32 says, now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. So here you have Philip uh, using this very verse to refer to Christ, understanding that it is concerning the Messiah. In the book of John... We're all familiar with this. The book of John, chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, what does John say? Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 19, Peter says, But with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So this is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus was a sacrificial lamb who paid the price for our sins. You know, when they did the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, the people would come and place their hands on the lamb and they would pass their sins onto the lamb uh, spiritually. uh, And then the lamb would be sacrificed, reflecting what should be happening to them. Jesus put his hands on himself, even though he had never sinned, and took on the sins of all forever as a sacrificial lamb. But that's not the end of the story as far as Jesus as a lamb, because he's not just the sacrificial lamb, he is also the triumphant lamb. And for that, we go to the triumphant book of Revelation, And in verse uh, chapter 5 of Revelation, John is weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is in the, from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And here's the, the verse, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. A lamb standing as if slain. There is a message in and of itself. uh, Because the lamb was slain, but didn't remain slain. Um, 
And then, going to verses 8 and 9, And when he had taken the book, that is, this lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation. Then verses 12 and 13, and they uh, were then praising God, and in verses 12 and 13, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That is a triumphant Lamb, which Jesus also is. All right, let's go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. All right, now we've passed through, by the way, the birth of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. All right, stop there. So now we have another character to cast in our play. We need a king. Think Jesus can handle that one? All right. We're going to take a little bit of time with this. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. is a prophecy of Messiah, a prophecy of Jesus. Starting in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, that is David's descendant, after you, who will come forth for you, from you, I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 15, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Isaiah 9, for those who were here, we looked at these two weeks ago, but they're worth looking at again. Isaiah 9 Verse 7, again, a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of Jesus. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel sees a vision of the coming Messiah, Jesus. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, Jesus' favorite name for himself, was coming. And he, gave, he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then Zechariah, Zechariah 6.13, another prophecy of this Messiah, of Jesus. Yet, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and is he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. No separation of church and state when it comes to the Messiah. He sits on the throne. So the Old Testament tells us 
that Jesus is a king. What about the New Testament? Back to our traditional story in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, when the angel is, Gabriel is uh, first speaking to Mary, he says this in verses 32 and 33 of Luke 1, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. By the way, that seems to be a recurring theme, that he's not just a king, but he's a king forever. Um, So you have New Testament prophecy as well as Old Testament prophecy. What about Jesus? Uh, Does he think he's a king? Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In John chapter 18, when Pilate is questioning Jesus and giving him his trial, He's questioning Jesus, and he asks him, are you a king? That's what they say. Jesus answered, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. So Jesus also says that he's a king. So we have Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, we have the words of Jesus, and then we have the fulfillment of prophecy. A number of passages in the book of Revelation, I'll just turn to one of them, chapter 11 and verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15, in the midst of the um, various horrific punishments that are coming on the world, the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So here's the fulfillment of those many prophecies as Jesus becomes the king. And there are other passages in the book of Revelation uh, that I've listed there that tell us the same thing. All right, so back to Matthew chapter 2. No way, we're getting near the end. Aren't too many roles left to play. Matthew chapter 2, back to verse 1, where we just saw the king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and by the way, we skipped the evil king that's introduced in 2.1 and just went to the good king. Uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, the evil king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Magi, the wise guys, the wise men. Can Jesus play the wise man in the play? Colossians 2.3, Colossians 2.3 tells us this, speaking of Christ in verse 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That would seem to qualify him as a wise man. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, the prophet Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. 
Jesus is not only, he not only has all the treasures of wisdom, he not only has the spirit of wisdom, but he's actually the embodiment of wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, In verse 24, Paul says this. I will introduce who he's talking about in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. He's the embodiment of wisdom. What did Jesus say about it? Matthew chapter 12. Does he accept the role? Does he think he's qualified? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 42 Jesus is giving some answers as to his qualifications, as to who he is. And in verse 42, The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is Solomon famous for being? The wisest man ever. But... Now, he's number two on the list. Something greater than the wisdom of Solomon is here in Christ. Um, And Luke gives the same thing. What kind of wisdom? Look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Verse 53 tells us we're talking about Jesus. And it says, In coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in the synagogue so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So he has... Astonishing wisdom. And not only that, but he has wisdom to spare. In Luke 21, in verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. He has wisdom to give. He's going to give his disciples wisdom. And where do we see that fleshed out? Well, it's not actually even with one of his disciples, technically, not with one of the apostles, but nonetheless with someone who believed in Christ. Stephen, look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 10. When Stephen is talking to them, it says in verse 10, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Just as Jesus said, I will give you wisdom such that your opponents can't deal with. Well, here's Stephen showing us that. He has wisdom with which they were unable to cope. All right. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll have our last character, quote, end quote. We'll fill out our cast. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod asked. Or, excuse me, the Magi said. For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. Verses 9 and 10, Having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We have to have a Christmas star, right? Those of you who do the tree thing, you have to have a star at the top. Or if we're doing a production, everybody asks, who's the star? Well, let's find out. Numbers, chapter 24, and verse 17. Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star shall come forth from Jacob. This is another messianic prophecy of a star that is coming. But it's not that kind of star. It's not talking about a rock in the sky, a glowing rock. It's talking about the Messiah. And Peter picks up on this. And so if we go all the way back from one end of the Bible to the other, to 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 19. And Peter says, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Well, who is the morning star? What's he talking about here? In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am, I am, the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is, by his own words, the morning star. And why does this matter? In 1 John chapter 3, in verse the Apostle John says this, Beloved, now remember what Peter said, the morning star rising in your hearts. 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Peter talks about the morning star rising in our hearts. That's salvation. When we embrace the morning star, he rises in our hearts. And John tells us that when he appears, we shall be like him. Earlier in Revelation, in chapter 2 and 28, John talks in the letter to the churches about the morning star appearing as well. But I think the key to this is in Colossians chapter 3. If you think about what John just said, that we, when he appears we shall be like him, Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, 
then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So let me suggest to you that the morning star arises in our hearts when we are saved, when we accept the morning star as our Savior, but in full and completely, we see the morning star when we are like him. That our lives are bound up in who he is. Think about it this way, who we really are, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, who we really are is not what we see around us. Who we really are is bound up in Christ. And that won't be revealed until he's revealed. That's what Paul says here. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. The morning star has been born in our hearts, and we will, have, we will share glory with him ultimately when he and his glory is revealed. So star, in the case of Jesus, doesn't refer to a glowing rock in space or to the primary actor in a play or certainly to an ornament atop a tree. If we let it, and again, remember, I'm not saying these things are what the story is talking about. I'm telling you this is a device to focus our attention on Christ. It's a device to get us to think about Christ and the many aspects of who Christ is. And in this last one, how it directly relates to us. If we let it, it can remind us of the transforming brightness that Jesus brought in our hearts when, when our new life in him dawned. It can encourage us in the realization that when, we, when he dawns in his full glory, we will be glorified with him. Like Christmas... In the end, it will all be a one God-man show. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to think about these things without getting emotional. When we focus on your son and who he is and what he's done and what he will be, And what we will be because of him, Father, we are just so thankful and grateful. And we just praise you and glorify you. We praise Jesus and glorify Jesus. We praise the Holy Spirit and glorify him for passing along this message to us so that we can have confidence in that day. And Father, if we think about it, we can have confidence in this day. And so, Father, we ask you to help us to elevate Christ to the center of all things and that you would help us to live in light of that. Amen.